Hello and welcome back to another episode of Rally DNA. I'm Killian Cronin, joined once again by my talented co-host, Jamie Arkell. How are you, Jamie? Hello, Killian. Hello, everyone. Delighted to be here. Uh, it's great to be back once again for episode three of season two. And this week, it's time to throw away your rose-tinted glasses and cover a class of rallying that has seen the most infamous online discourse, Group B. Uh, despite what the internet would have you believe and viciously react if you disagree, Group E cares, and Group E itself wasn't the best thing to happen to motorsport, and nor did the sport go backwards since. Shocking, isn't it? But we're not going to talk about how Alancia S4 wouldn't actually lap Estoril faster than an F1 car, because, of course, nobody in their right mind would believe such a thing, <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, enough of igniting tensions in the comment section. Today, we want to discuss some also-rans and never-rans spawned for the Group E regulations, or more specifically, the group B12 regs and we're going to start with the also rants and here we'll cover some of the either lesser known or lesser talk about uh, cars to compete against the cream of the crop 205 T16s these are not and for a variety of reasons couldn't attain the same results that cars like the 037 and Quattro are remembered for and some barely even enter the mind when one may think of group B. Killian I like the way you commenced this episode by already torching and dividing the fan base and i can already hear the furious mashing of keyboard keys from here well um, for- fortunately nobody listens to this podcast on the youtube upload so unless they start you know, they can't comment on spotify yet so unless unless they know the youtube ones will start getting loads <laughs> of views just to comment on it we, we might get away with it <laughs> <laughs> i look forward to receiving hate mail in the post yes well you're the one with the more expansive uh, social media following so surely you'll bear the brunt of this despite it being me airing these views i'll take one for the team <laughs> yeah so we're going to kick off uh, as i said with the also rands and we're going to begin with the nissan 240 rs uh, and before we talk about the 240 RS, we really must t- touch on its predecessor, the Silvia GTS. Now, Datsun had been knocking about and rallying for a while now, and the, the, the Datsun Silvia GT was a, a very solid, dependable performer, if not quite exotic or groundbreaking in, in any way, shape or form. Now, the Silvia was essentially a violet GT, given a coupe body and sometimes a turbo. Um, and Datsun's approach was very w- much one of let's not go wild, let's make it last the course. And to be fair, they, they usually did. And in 1982, in an effort to spice things up and not get left further behind in the performance stakes, took the measure of adding fuel injection and a turbocharger, which increased power output to 270 horsepower or thereabouts. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's a it's a classic uh, Nissan uh, rally car from the, the late 70s, really. Um, resolutely production-based. Um, majoring on on toughness uh, at the expense of of technology on outright performance, um, and owed a lot really to, as Killian said, to the the Violet, um, on which most of its mechanicals were carried over. Um, a lot of the guys in the team uh, harboured the idea that perhaps the new body shell wasn't as tough as the old one. Um, I thought it's quite hard to prove that, um, but one thing's for certain: it didn't achieve 
the uh, the same as its predecessor did in the the classic East African safaris, um, and suffered as a result. Yeah, and and well, at this point, the the, the pesky quattro had come along to stymie any hopes the manufacturers had of consistently competing at the top end with only two driven wheels. The GTS did manage a third place at Safari in '82, um, with their approach to ruggedness some bit paying off. But in fairness, the end was nigh. Yes, I mean, and also I think quite a lot of that has to uh, to do with the fact that they, uh, well, no, not Safari because that was Mike Kirkland, but Nissan had the good fortune of uh, of signing up a young Timo Salonen, uh, who who cut his teeth with the the Silvia, um, which helped. He drove the turbocharged version to fourth on the Thousand Lakes that year, uh, which was its best result in in on a sort of European sprint style rally. Mm-hmm. And, and Salonen, of course, would go on to bigger and greater things in a few years to come. Bigger and greater cigarettes. Yes. And well, the glasses couldn't get any bigger, I guess, but I'm sure he would have. <laughs> um, and so enter the 240 RS, which, which I'll start by saying, I absolutely love it. I, I had the pleasure lately of, of seeing one in, in the metal uh, on the road. And um, yeah, I mean, you can't say it's attractive. You know, the, the arches are a glorious afterthought. And, um, you know, it looks like they've been attached by Stevie Wonder and the overhangs that look you know rather big even for the day, particularly maybe made look a little bit more cumbersome by the small wheels of the time. But I think it's all the better for it. It's, it's a gloriously cool thing. Uh, but enough about the looks. What, what's simultaneously the most interesting and most puzzling thing about this car is that on the surface, it appears not to be an evolution of what came before, but, you know, almost a step backwards. What do you think, Jamie? Absolutely, uh, and and the classic example being the or classic yeah, evidence being the Nissan's decision to to switch from uh, fuel injection, which they'd sampled on and off, to old school carbs. Um, you'd assume the thinking being reliability um, and you know ease of tune uh, for for the team, but hardly the kind of uh, forward looking mindset that that came to dominate Group B and and set the the winning teams. Uh, apart from the also runs. Yeah, I mean, all, all the more strange given at the time that this is when we see all sorts of these quote-unquote innovations and, and teams going to, you know, forced induction, all-wheel drive, and, and here you have a team that has just brought in fuel injection and a turbocharger, and then with all these new regulations, it's like, you know what, mm. let's, let's feck that in the bin. Um, and it was it was a brand new engine for for this use as well the two point four. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sixteen valve, which was definitely a step up. But uh, yeah, they dropped back to to massive fifty mil Solex uh, DCOEs. Um, I mean, I suppose Opel did a similar thing with the the Manta because that could be had with the weird Kugelfischer mechanical fuel injection or the big carbs that the the works teams tended to run. Um, and I guess it's kind of because it was a, a crossover point between, you know, fuel injection, not exactly being witchcraft, but not quite as understood by every man and mechanic in the street as opposed to carbs, which were a known quantity. And, you know, everyone, every rally driver or rally technician worth his salt knew how knew how to get the best from them um, and, and what that meant in terms of performance. I suppose it goes back to Nissan's attitude with, with the previous car that they're they're trying to you know keep it simple, stupid to to an extent, and and keep keep things easier for the team, go a bit more rugged and conventional. But the two forty did have uh, you know a number of big differences, uh, and even though it wasn't naturally aspirated, it did have more power than the turbocharged uh, Silvia GTS that came before. Two hundred and sixty five horsepower thereabouts out of the box, 
growing to 277 in the Evo model, polymer panels, wider track. You know, it, it was never going to be able to compete in outright pace, no matter the surface. But the, they were kind of going to target results based based on attrition, really. Oh, yeah. And that was that was fairly par for the course for Japanese car manufacturers competing in rallying at the time. There, there was um, traditional uh, sort of safari East African endurance tests seemed to hold a lot more sway for Japanese car makers from a marketing point of view, which makes sense when you think about how Japanese car manufacturers at the time, you know, the 70s, late 70s, were viewed in the same way that we viewed Korean stuff, you know, 15, 20 years ago, fairly soulless, reliable, reliability sells, and that's the be all and end all, really. Uh, and even then, you know, early Japanese cars in in Ireland and, uh, and England and further afield were known for dissolving. So I guess they felt that they had a point to prove. Yes, I mean, the, the Dats and Cherries uh, on sale in, in this neck of the woods at that time were, well, they were gone already, actually, by 83, I guess. Um, <laughs> There's a rust quicker than they finished. <laughs> yeah, I, I did actually see a Dats and Cherry in, in a seaside village uh, in Kerry a number of months ago. I was surprised to see that it was... Well, it seemed to be in one piece, unless it was a cardboard cutout of some description. But yeah. the, the the owner would have regretted taking it to the seaside because it would have dissolved on the way home. Yes, I mean, when he went to open the door, it probably came off the hinges. Um, <laughs> but back to the two forty, you know, it it was quite well liked by its crews. Uh, you know, very predictable handling. Um, they were very cheap to buy and run. They're very popular with privateers um, across Europe uh, and and further afield. Um, and to go back to Timo Salon and his, his efforts in the 240, you know, he drove to a great second in New Zealand in 1983, which, again, you would think, new surface, gravel, un, well, you know, quote-unquote, underpowered, maybe, rear-wheel drive. At that time, just as, as the Quattro was getting more reliable and numerous, um, that's a that's a standout result for the car. It is, but you've also got to remember, and I haven't looked at the entry list for that, but it was the other side of the world when manufacturers didn't have, weren't obliged to tackle all events so it's a fair safe bet that the entry list would have been fairly meager in terms of all-wheel drive cars especially if it was what 83 mm. um it would have but... been just quattros really at the at the time oh exactly and i'm not yeah. sure whether any made that made the trip um but uh th- that same year nissan got closest to its best wrc result on the safari um salonen was winning hand over fist on the final leg uh, but the other two cars had been put out with sticking valve issues, and Nissan had to decide whether to change Salonen's head as a as a precaution and lose 30, 45 minutes, um, or whether to uh, to you know roll the dice and chance it. And they chose the latter. And because you know we're here recording this, it didn't work out. Salonen's engine cooked itself, and uh, Ari Vatanen won uh, in an Opel in an Opel Ascona. Um, which is, you know, it's a shame, but but as with, with these cars, you know, there was a very finite, small window for a car 240 RS to win a WRC event, even on the Safari in Africa. And I dare say 1983 was it, because as we all know afterwards, things got rather more trick, powerful and, uh, and sophisticated. And, and with that lack of a, a WRC win, it then as a result has to firmly stay in the also-ran category. Um, though it is worth mentioning a very, in appearance and principle on a lot of levels, it's a Japanese counterpart, the Toyota Twin Cam Turbo, 
you know, very similar in approach and philosophy, but with a good dollop of boost to help it along and would probably, will and did end up kind of usurping the 240 RS on endurance events. Oh, yeah. I mean, me and you had a discussion about whether which car should go in here. And and the thing that, you know, the two for the uh, the Celica twin can turbo cam turbo might have been, you know, out of step with Group B as uh, as we think of it. But you can't argue with the results. Uh, I think, you know, it won every safari it, it contested. Uh, and I think it won two of the three Ivory Coast it contested as well off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, considering it was effectively designed to do that. You know, you can't call it a, an also run if it fulfilled its brief. Um, yeah, yeah and, and who knows if they had boosted the two forty, maybe we wouldn't be calling it an also ran. It could have ended up getting those results that the the Salika did, but um, you know, that's, yeah, that's hindsight for you. It looked good with Tony Pond driving it. You know, uh, there's that. I think it's a two forty RS that in that famous that wonderful bit of uh, footage of uh, from the Tour de Course. I think it's nineteen eighty. Three, uh, where the cameraman's asking him about what all the the different teams and drivers are doing ah, yes. for their te- for their drivers to combat the heat, and Tony says with a wry smile, "It's like I'm having a cup of tea. It seems to be working." It's like, man, what a guy, what a hero. <laughs> if only, if only you know, Instagram and 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 mobile phones were around back then to capture more Tony Pan moments um, oh. of that ilk. <laughs> I must say, given when I was researching this, this oh, I did um. Have a good look at the homologation road car as well. I must say, actually, it seems like it would have been a rather good thing. I mean, they look like a big lardy car, um, but in fair, you know, two hundred and forty brake in a road car of the time, uh, nine hundred and eighty kilos. That thing would have moved up the road pretty well, I reckon. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and as you say, by the comparison of the the other stuff on the road at the time, you think of like hot Fords with one hundred and thirty brake, or or even you know a few years later. You know, Sierra Cosworths were, were sold with 200 brake, you know, and, and of course, we all know that that was just the starting point. But 240, naturally aspirated 240 yeah. as well, would have been would have been shit hot. I mean, that would have <laughs> in, in the sub ton car, that would be pretty rapid today. It, it's 160 less than uh, an F40 we had about four years later. If, if, if I saw so, I think, yeah, 400 brake for an F40. Yeah, either way. Yeah. And you think when the like the 205 T16 road cars were not nearly as quick or as wild as they would appear to look on the surface. Um, they were sub 200 horsepower turbocharged cars. Uh, and I'd doubt. imagine the four-wheel drive system and it would have rather sapped the power as well at the time. I don't doubt you'd have a lot more fun driving a 240 RS road car than you would a bone stock 205 T16 road car. I, yeah, 100%. 100%. So what's next on the list, Jamie? Next up, another rear-wheel drive car, uh, the RX-7, the Mazda RX-7, um, which is a bit of a weird one, the RX-7, because um, in some respects it was a left-field project um, because of the Wankel engine. You know, it, that was a bit of a an odd left-field decision even then. But in actuality, it was probably too conservative, certainly for, for how Group B became. Um, it was superb uh, in that it howled and shrieked its way through a stage. But it was also grounded the realities of mass production uh, and was always destined to struggle once Group B as a category came of age uh, by 1984, 85 or so. Um, it could trace its roots to a Group 4 endeavour uh, by Mazda Rally Team Europe, who were also the driving force behind the Group B programme. Uh, and as such, it's perhaps not surprising that its production roots were, were remain visible throughout. Um Mazda weren't didn't seem 
too enamored with the idea of a, a Group B program. Um, and as was often the case with car makers and Japanese car makers in particular at the time, it took a, a European specialist guiding and leading the hand of, of a, a Japanese company to sort of cajole and convince them of the worth worth of the project, especially the RX-7. This is the oh, the FD, the first one. Um, I've definitely got that wrong, haven't I? No, it's an FC. FC, um, I reckon. FC, yeah, I can hear the the. JPM and now the rotary like. pages are going blowing oh, up as well. Oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. Um, <laughs> research, research on point as usual. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it was well into its production run um, come the time of its its initial debut and in, uh, development in 83 and debut in 1984. So you can see why Master would have been a bit reticent about greenlighting a program based on it. And, you know, it's a classic case of a viable car that could have been a world beater if Group B had stayed as a sort of Group 4 plus as it was viewed in the early portion of the 80s um it was mm. the quickest most powerful naturally aspirated of all the group b cars with 300 brake um but you know still rear wheel drive and thus destined to to never be uh, you know a, a, a fully world player yeah i mean rear wheel drive as you said the, the lack of maybe a full backing from the manufacturer and, and the you know as as evidenced by your similar cars in the category, it's it's one of these, it's still largely production-based. It's not a true one of these homologation supercars that later came to dominate the class. And no one kind of could really without doing such a thing. Um, but apparently, well, according to former guest Mark Duez, um, he rather liked it, drove it a bit later on. Apparently, great car to drive, very easy to, to modulate on the stage and loved the engine, just chasing revs, chasing revs. But, you know, he enjoyed himself in it, but it wasn't going to come up against mm. the the big fire breathing guys, really. I think that's one of the one of the things that I've always found fascinating about Group B, and more so as I get older, is just the the fact that it seems that whether or not your Group B car was a success tended to hinge on whether the car company and the people in charge grasped the full potential of the category. You know, if mm -hmm. if you were a Jean Todd, and you realise that actually almost anything's on the table, let's make it mid-engine, go the whole hog, and of course, with the necessary budget, then that's how you get a, a winner. If you were a Japanese car maker, as as they tend to be very conservative, um, then, you know, you were basically confining yourself to, you know, uh, slightly odd results uh, from further afield rallies that were less supported. Um yeah. yeah, I mean, you could do a whole list of these kind of Group 4-rooted cars that translated to Group B, you know, that they think, oh, we'll give it a go and this will it will tick the box. Uh, meanwhile, you know, someone in France is developing a 205 T16 um, bespoke mm -hmm. car almost, uh, whereas this was, it was just on paper, it was never really going to work. Yes, and quite, quite conservative in terms of spec as well, because, I mean, it was a 13B, uh, the initial rotary, um, which was 645cc, but uh, reckoned to be 2.6 once the uh, equivalent formula had been factored in. Um, 300 brake with uh, just 980 kilograms to pull along, which, let's face it, must have been quite fun, as Mark Dewey said. And the noise, um, you know, we've all heard that 
787B Le Mans car, and it wasn't quite as manic as that, but it must have been quite something here, mm. bouncing off walls, you know, through a stage. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And it, was, it sounded like nothing else at the time. So um, didn't do a whole pile of events, didn't really travel the globe, the RX-7, as much as some of the others did. I think it was apparent quite early on that it was going to be short-lived. Yes, um, I think. And I think also, as perhaps is evidenced by what happened in Group A a few years later, Mazda's commitment to group to rallying was always bit more tenuous than the other Japanese car makers mm-hmm. um and yeah I mean the, the it must have been quite easy for for them to see that the group a was the way to go since it, it it appealed very much to that Japanese idea at the time of production based rally cars let's let's make it production originated and we can prove that our 323 group a has the stuff to to win rather than this slightly leggy for the time rx7 um even if it was you know, shit hot in terms of noise, looks, and everything else. Yeah, big time. I mean, yeah, what more can you say on that front? And also maybe the fact that, you know, if you're going to try and get the manufacturer to back you, I mean, great to have this this coupe body, you know, with, with a performance wankel engine. But for the marketing point of view, maybe something else maybe would have been a better call for Mazda Rally Team Europe to try and adapt for the stages. Yeah, consider they are also running Group A 323s prior to to the events of 1987 you know it must have there was presumably the the potential to to make a, an absolutely bonkers 323 with a mid-engined ala 205t16 um but you know it wasn't unsuccessful um it uh, its best result was uh, was third overall on the acropolis ringvar carlson um which is weird in as much as that's a very, very slow, very hot, very dusty rally. And it, that's not the environment that we've come to associate rotary reliability with. Um, but that maybe says more about the the unreliability of, of turbocharged cars of the same generation. Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> and from one naturally aspirated car to another, albeit this time with four driven wheels, we move on to the Metro 6R4. Um, perhaps hear that, hear that sound. That that sound is is the sound of uh, of, of keyboard ire. Yeah, we're keeping the <laughs> we're wearing out the keyboards today. Um, yeah, look, I, I know this is a little bit controversial, uh, and it's not. It really isn't here just to be controversial because I like that really isn't what we're about. Okay, it's kind of fun to to, to do that sometimes, but I, I that really in my mind, I, I think it has to be here. Uh, look, it is one of the iconic cars spawned by Group B, and with very good reason. The noise, the body, you know, it totally doesn't look like a Metro. It's, uh, you know, the unique approach taken by Williams designing the car. You know, we covered the Metro before in a previous episode. It is, no other word, it, it is iconic. It absolutely must be said. I've got a Metro t-shirt. You know, it's a, it's a cracking, cracking car to experience and to look at and all the rest of it. But we're talking about also rents here. So, you know, you cannot say the car was success in given the terms of the brief for the team. This was a car intended to win world rallies and beat the established frontrunners of Lancia, Audi, and later Peugeot. No, it, it didn't do that. Not in not in the category of the time, not in the world championship. So it has to be here, unfortunately, for the Metro. I don't think you could ever honestly call a car that that that's best result at world level the level it was meant to to succeed at 
Um, it's better to a, a, a third overall on its debut. I mean, it's impressive, but it's it's not. It does that does not a uh, a WRC legend make. No, no, no. And look, you know, we love old cars. We, you know, the classic thing. It, it there's always an element of rose tinted glasses, and just because it came from a very popular era, does not a successful car make. Um, no, look, uh, much of this can be put down to two simple reasons. One, it arrived too late. And two, reliability. It's it's as simple as that. Now we'll talk further about that. But yeah, that 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 really is the crux of it. And and you know, late arriving in motorsport, it's plagued many many cars and teams over the years. And this is one of those cars. Yeah, absolutely. And and it sort of links into the thing I said earlier about uh, Group B cars being hamstrung by a lack of uh, a lack of creativity and and appreciation of the of what the rules enabled and it didn't let's face it you know the the the, the fellows that grew the, the group b metro there was no end of creativity all-wheel drive massive wings the 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 trendsetter in terms of aerodynamics this is this is forward-looking stuff for the early 80s but as you say money and and british leyland's or austin rover group rather austin rover group's perennial financial maladies you know, just dented it. But bear in mind that this is a company that was borrowing money uh, from the British government throughout the 70s. Putting um, it on a fire. Putting it on a fire. And then, of course, that around this time it happened, we've got uh, a new, far nastier government in charge um, who who refused to, uh, to to sort of accept any idea that, that a car company should be doing anything as frivolous as Group B rallying. I can imagine, you know, the, the Conservative government of the, of the 1980s didn't exactly see the appeal uh, of, of Group B. Which which has to be the reason then that this was really a secret programme, you know, developed at the behest of John Davenport, who had approached Williams to, to look into this and design the prototypes, build the prototypes. All of this was being done in secret. So, you know, that sounds, it's a great story in the pub, but without the backing and the full backing of, of a mainstream manufacturer, when you do unveil it to them, they're going to, okay, they might go, oh, wow, great, you've turned up at this thing. What a thing. But they're, they're only going to half-heartedly budget for it then. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, you know, and I think that's kind of, you can see the thinking that must have been there from the BL top brass, bearing in mind they'd achieved modest success on a tiny budget in the late 70s with uh, the TR7 V8 and, and and similar things. And I imagine that the MIDI program of 15 years previous didn't exactly break the bank either. So mm. it must have been quite a hard sell to to think that, to get these people to believe that to be able to do the same thing and win even more in the modern world, 1982, um, that, that, that required far more money and expertise, testing and the whole, and, and support and the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, they may well have thought they'd be able to pull it off with a similar kind of shoestring approach to it. Now, look, the car was conceived actually quite early in terms of a lot of the cars it would actually end up uh, going head-to-head with. You know, if it was ready for its big debut at least a year sooner than it was, we could be having a different conversation. But that's what happens. You know, Williams developed the prototypes in six months, which is very impressive, in 1981. Gravel testing commenced 1983. But the car was officially launched in May 1985, at which point we have the big guns. 
Yeah, uh, and it's worth uh, listening back to our earlier episode on the development of the Metro Six R Four to to get the skinny on on why this this protracted development uh, program stretched on and on and on. Um, but yes, as you say, there there is an alternate history where Tony Pond is nineteen eighty four World Rally Champion um, with with a, a Metro Six R Four, and it's a world that I think we should all wish we lived in. Mm. Yes, I mean, I mean, increased popularity of mustaches to this day, no doubt. Yeah, and and more special edition metros built built to to flog them. <laughs> yeah, maybe it would have saved BL. <laughs> uh, oh, that's too much of a stretch. I didn't think there's any alternate history in which BL survives. I mean, um, it's, it's interesting, in as much as because because the metro, I think the six R fours. Or the development of the six R four kind of waxed and waned in relation to how well the Metro road car was doing because any sort of nerd of BL will tell you the Metro sold like hotcakes when it was introduced and it was I think the third bestseller in the UK. Uh, it sold modestly further afield and in Europe as well. And for a time, BL and Austin Rover thought that's it. We've got a winner. We've got money, perhaps to spare. And that, I dare say, was when the initial idea of, of signing off a program like the 6R4 was given the nod. But it didn't last. Metro sales plummeted very swiftly as cars like, you know, the, the Renault 5 and stuff came on. And and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like even still, like, you know, having done some you know, covered the Metro before and done some more research for this episode, that the Metro was rallying a lot longer. Okay, disregarding for a second these national events and national championships that happened post Group B, they only entered the World Championship in 1986. That was it. That was its works program in the World Championship. Um, and, and even though the Pond raved about the car when he first drove it in '83, he didn't get to compete in the World Championship with it for three years after that. And at this point, you know, it's Lancia S4s. 205 to 16s. And the big thing that kills it there, apart from the awful reliability, which we'll touch on, is the fact that um, turbo lag had been, if not cured, certainly countered by various methods. And you had the really spicy, high octane, which is brew fuels used by Lancia, Peugeot, Audi, which kind of negated the, the initial advantage that the Metro was conceived to have. Yeah, and certainly the metros, the, the idea behind the metro and, and the ideas in principle were very good. Um, again, they were the, the the advance of time removed any advantage or, or benefit that those ideas may have had. And of course, as you pointed out, the, the reliability, um, head gaskets, cam belts. Cam belts, that's the big yeah, one, isn't that's it? That's the famous one, yeah. Um, but still very interesting care, but definitely deserves its place. Uh, well, you know, nothing maybe deserves is a bad word, but it, it has to be on this list. Um, another impressive thing, Patrick Head reckons that he spent about 40% of his time uh, working with Williams at this period, working on the Metro, while he was still doing his F1 role, which sounds mental. And it's not like 1984 was uh, a fallow year for Williams' F1 either. Isn't that the uh, the, the Nelson PK Mansell title charge? With the big Honda V6 Turbo, so it's not like he was he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, did he sleep? <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. So, no uh, so impressive car, lovely sound. Urge everyone to go hear it. Look at all the videos of Tony Pan's mustache. You can, you know, 
I suppose the one thing we should address, and it's not it's not a reason for it to be considered a world beater, but it is the longest lasting uh, of all the Group B cars. You know, it was it was a clubman favourite until well into the late nineties, early noughties, when it was still an affordable thing. Um, you know, I doubt I, I, I so imagine most of us certainly, if you're in the UK, have seen one competing. If you're of our age, um, but. I mean, it found its level to to quote uh, to part to to quote McLean. Um and it's impossible to. I mean, let's face it: the the guys that that Green lit it wouldn't have considered that uh, a, a decent reward for their investment. No, and it has to be said that that was after those reliability issues had been cured as well. But Cheney. Next up, we have uh, the poster child for abject motorsport failure in the nineteen eighties: the Citroen VX Four TC. Which is, let's face it, a wonderful car, and 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 all the better for being a terrible waste of space. Uh, but I love it. Um, whether it's right that it's come to to stand that for all that was half baked and poorly planned about Group B is open to question. But it must have made been made immeasurably worse for being the sister car to the most the winningest Group B car of all, the T sixteen. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, the 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 relationship with Peugeot and Citroen. If, if we had no two or five, would we look at the BX in different light? Probably not, actually. But you know, um, it makes this look worse because some of the same personnel and technology and parts all came from the same group. Yeah, I mean, and there's a revisionist way of looking at the BX as well because you know. I know that uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Stav of Stavtech, uh, has, has tried to rehabilitate its image by pointing to its Rallycross success afterwards. But I believe they were Group A cars developed along Rallycross rules rather than Group B. Um, in any case, I mean, Citroen's Group B origins uh, started with the, the Visa, uh, which, as we all know, produced various quite cool and quite successful for their for their B10 class uh, derivatives. Uh, the all-wheel drive meal pieces, piece being the, the most famous. Um, and, and this is what convinced the factory to give the green light to a full B12 class top tier Group B program. Um, this would have been in 1982. Uh, the first prototype for a BX rally car was the, well, sorry, the first truly effective one was the 4x4 Stracket of 1983, which showed probably more promise than the actual final car at least for its time because it was quite lightweight uh space framed turbocharged um and did all right um it was leading the 1983 meal again before overheating issues forced it out um and this is when guy veria or guy rather the french uh who came on board and is the fellow who masterminded and spearheaded the bx program now, all this sounds probably great at the moment. If you haven't seen a BX or TC, when you, you know, close, if, if you've never, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you have seen what they look like. But as Jamie's talking about turbocharged, space frame, lightweight cars with loads of composite panels, you're going, oh, well, this thing must be, it all sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> then they pull off the covers in some sort of Homer Simpson esque um, 
yeah, design <laughs> arrives from the underneath. BX, the car design. <laughs> yeah. And the, str- the track is just it makes me think of like a DIY tools catalog or something like that. Well, I mean, that, that, the track it was, I mean, if you Google it, it looks uh, far, well, far less ungainly than the car we actually got. It has none of the weird front overhang. Um, it looks a lot more like the BX road car. Uh, but this was 1983 and as we all know 1983, 1984 is when Group B goes a little bit bonkers Um, and because I've had various reasons put forward as to why Guy Verrier decided to be so conservative Um, I suspect budget was a big factor because you know, Peugeot got the lion's share of the of the cash going. <laughs> Don't delete that. Um, but... I got that out. <laughs> um, but also, he was a man with a, a very personal connection to Citroen. Um, and I heard that given as a reason as to why he decided to use as many production parts drawn from the Citroen range, along with budget, presumably another, uh, for, to make the BX. Um, and as such, uh, it ended up having the uh, the SM slash Citroen DS gearbox, a five-speed, um, which which was never going to cut the mustard. The transmission of the BX4TC um, is perhaps the most obvious example of this weird reluctance to, to divest itself for production technology. Um, there was... The aforementioned gearbox, of course, which was drawn from a car from 20 years previously. But its differential or lack of one, it had no centre differential or a transfer box, um, which, of course, meant it was locked 50-50 split front to rear. Great for for low traction rallies like the Swedish and the Acropolis, but really not ideal for tarmac or or fast-paced cambered gravel stuff. And you got to suspect that it... It would. We never got to see what it would have been like on tarmac, but you got to think that it would have made an A1 Quattro look positively balletic. Yeah, it would be it'd be nice to to imagine some sort of understeer competition um, versus an old long Quattro and uh, a BX. And it's it's really unusual to think about a a French rally car that's going to be absolute garbage on tarmac. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> it's it just seems wrong. You know, it's it sounds like you know it's like if you were parachuting in, you know, uh, a Timo Salonen to do your Driver Trio Six Maxi on Tarmac and Corsica or something. You know, it's just like opposite land. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm sure Salonen would do quite well, but you you know what I'm getting at. Absolutely. Um. Citroen itself must have been at least partially aware of the issues uh, inherent in in locking or the lack of a centre differential um, in as much as it chose to fit the competition BX with its own variable power steering system, which, of course, was production derived. Uh, This was Diravi or in French, Direction Arapel Aceribi, literally steering with controlled return. And I apologise to any French speakers listening to us because I have no tongue for French. And I'm a, an oaf. I, I, and you've got to assume that uh, this system, it, it was production based and therefore would have been like all Citroen stuff of the time, 
geared towards disassociating the driver from the road. You know, it's comfort, it's cosseting. It's not what you want, you'd assume, when trying to hit an apex on a on a nasty, nasty gravel B road, let alone with the longest body in the world. Yeah, especially because it's Citroen as well, where their whole thing is that you have a complete disconnection from the outside world and don't feel what's going on underneath you at all. Um, so it's well, a rather bizarre approach. Although you you know, listening to you talk about this, this really really emphasised use of production based parts. I guess the marketing team's influence on on the motorsport side was that we're going to win with Citroen bits. You know, it's not going to be sourced this from here or developed this bespokely that we can sell this to the masses. But when Citroen's masses are buying their cars because they can't feel any bumps in the road. It seems like a rather unusual approach to, to put in your rally care. Yeah, and it's you know a case in point the the decision to carry over the hydropneumatic sphere based suspension, um, which which probably had its own benefit in in events like the Acropolis. But you would have to assume that in the balance with everything factored in, you'd want something a bit more precise and and you know on the edge, as it were. Yeah, um, and the engine. Um, this was uh, an eight valve single overhead cam uh, taken from the Chrysler 180, I believe, the N9TE. Uh, it had an iron block alley head, and I think it could trace its origins to the late 60s. Um, Citroen fitted a massive turbo, dry sump system, and fuel injection, but it still was still a far cry removed from from the, those those chaps over the road at Peugeot were doing. So we've Mate. got an engine and a gearbox that are at least 20 years old at this point. Yeah, yeah. From road um, cars. And it made uh, 400 brake, but that was detuned to 380 as a SOP to reliability. Then there was the manner in which the engine was located. Uh, it was mounted longitudinally uh, with its leading cylinder four of the front axle. Uh, which, of course, owed a great deal to the BX4TC's production car underpinnings and denoted Citroen's unwillingness to fully embrace the potential of Group B. Um, it also meant the car had another uh, Gallic A2 long quattro handling thing going on. Um, understeer was prevalent. And as Audi would have said, it's one of those issues that even with Group B, if you weren't willing to, to shred the, the link between rally car and production car, was insurmountable, um, especially with things like Delta S4s and T16s tearing around the place. So there was pr- presumably some French engineer watching early Quattro's win events, saw under the bonnet that the the engine was all the way past the front axle and went, hmm, yes, oh, oh. this is a successful formula. And I'm not, I was going to do an accent there, but I, <laughs> but I, but I backed out at the last second. Um, you're a better man than me. <laughs> uh, and, and despite all their it's you know use of composites and and lightweight, and assuming whatever the French term for lightweight is, um, it's still pretty pretty heavy beast at uh, eleven hundred and fifty kilos. So that's the heaviest yeah. of all the B twelve cars, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, uh, and you know the trouble is, it's all well and good being underpowered and a bit lardy if you're at least reliable but, but it wasn't that uh you know they they ran uh they entered citroen entered three rallies officially in 1986 bear in mind the car had been unveiled 
um, officially in late 1985. Um, the opening one being the Monty, of course, uh, for Jean-Claude Andre and uh, Philippe Wamberg, both retired quite early on. Uh, next time out, Andre put in the best performance of the car's career to take sixth overall in the Swedish. Um, but you've got to assume that was an event that played to the car's weird strengths. The the, the locked transmission 50-50 was definitely going to be its most effective at its most effective in a very snowy Swedish. Um, and then finally, the Acropolis, where there was some decent pace, to be fair, but maddeningly poor reliability. Uh, engines cooked on two of the three cars, and I think under a clouted a rock or something either way it was an accident that put him out it really sounds like it's it's like the full bingo card of of a bad rally car and you, you've kind of saved the, the best for last so it's 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 fat it's unreliable and it's slow yeah and and i think the, the really damning thing is it's mad to modern ears that this is a program sanctioned by the same people who were paying for the world beating group b program and and you know we might have our favorites but I think it's fair to say that the 205 T16 is would have been the best Group B car from a manufacturer's point of view because it looked like a 205. Admittedly, a slightly steroided up one, but, you know, it's a 205, whereas the others, however cool they were, visibly weren't. So on one hand, you have PSA making the archetypal winningest Group B rally car, and on the other a delightfully shite failure. Um, so much so that famously they tried to buy back as many of the homologation road cars to crush as possible. Yeah, didn't didn't one sell recently? It was it a, was there one at Goodwood for sale in one of those auction crowds? So it's probably the cheapest entry point into a B twelve homologation special. Uh, whether that's a good thing or not in this case. Is... I mean, it's a badass car. I'd love one, absolutely. If I won the lottery, I probably I'd be I'd be trying to buy one of these before I'd be trying to buy a two hundred five. But that's because I'm a a pervert when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, you you I think one appeared at Pebble Beach, which which is quite weird. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, what must an American uh, think of a VX forty C? It 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 almost deserves though the the, the VX. It, it it was always going to be in this list. I think the moment anyone would hear what we're talking about, they, they knew this was coming. But it it almost deserves its kind of subcategory. You could call it a barely ran, um, at some point. But it's it's a it's a, as you say, it's the poster card for for failure almost. But still, you I do quite like the road cars. Even like I mean, they're obviously terrible. Um, but terrible things can be cool. <laughs> Absolutely, that. <laughs> um, yeah, the poster child for for Group B. Uh, it's uh, least effective, I dare say, because at least Nissan probably spent far less developing and campaigning their two forty RS than than Citroen would have done. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they, they could pull. That, that was still, albeit a, a new car, it was still a kind of a Group Four Plus type machine that had all that experience. Um, like a Citroen cottoned on to the things that were required to win in the World Championship, and then used none of them properly, and in a kind of a bastardized, hamstrung, old yeah. production based parts bin special type way. Um, I dare say budget is the reason, you know, and there must have been some decision at, at, between the top brass that said you guys at Peugeot get the lion's share of the money and that you guys at Versailles have to make do with the, the scraps. Yeah, I mean, it really must be the case because it doesn't really make sense for, otherwise, does it? And with that, 
that concludes our list of the also rands. Righto. So next up, we have the never rands. And by that, we mean the Group B cars, which were designed for the formula, but which, for whatever reason, never made it to the special stage. Um, there are no end of entries for this, purely because the, the notion and concept of Group B was incredibly beguiling for car manufacturers and and pretty much, well, certainly a large percentage of them decided to have a go on some shape or form. Many never got past the the drawing board or even just the, the plan stage. Uh, but here are some of our favourites, starting with the Mitsubishi Starion four-wheel drive. Yeah, I, I really like the Starion. I think as a road carrier, I think they're, they're pretty damn cool as well. And I, and I must say the, the, the rally-based one is um, even more better looking but i think before before we could go into the starion we probably have to talk about the lancer 2000 turbo because it's it's part of the story really isn't it jamie absolutely and i think i mean this is probably one of my favorite really niche what if stories for rallying because i genuinely think this could have been a group four world beater had mitsubishi got its act together a few years before um it, it, it was uh turbocharged i think it made 270 brake very easily and perhaps far more than that with the boost screwed up and and the the powers that be looking the other way um it had the rallying's first programmable ecu which could be monitored uh from from further afield um and generally, yeah, still rear-wheel drive, but would have kicked the absolute stuffing out of uh, a Mark II Escort or a Fiat 131 had it been up and running reliably in 1978, let's say, as opposed to 1981. But Mitsubishi, small car company, some history of rallying with Andrew Cowan uh, earlier in the 70s with the GSR Lancer, but, but not the kind of clout uh of certainly of a european car company uh, even a uh, a fellow japanese car company like toyota not the budget not the not the the wherewithal really which meant that come group b they were found scratching around uh for a way of, of making do yeah and, and, and before we move on from that i would absolutely love to see the technology that was talking to the east the programmable ecu in that 2000 turbo i mean it probably would fill my living room or something like that um it, it must. It would probably be a sight to behold. Someone, what I don't even know what sort of computer would be used to, or brand, long dead brand, a Commodore yeah. or something ludicrous. Oh, it would have been Japanese, but it would have made oh. MS DOS seem cutting edge. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and yeah, Mitsubishi could see right away that the Lancer wasn't going to cut it in the face of the new opposition with with a lot of firepower. No, they had. As you've said, they tried turbocharging, you know, which was definitely going to be something that was required going forward. But they now needed to turn to the new key element in rallying success, which was four-wheel drive. Now, rather than using rallying to market their existing saloon cars, they thought the time had come to promote their striking new sports coupe in the form of the Starion, which did already come in turbocharged guys, uh, helping to, to lend some more credence to this concept. Um, now, rally art under Andrew Cowan uh, was to bring the project to the stages who they had worked with Mitsubishi before, and new engineer Alan Wilkinson, who had worked on the, the Quattro. Yeah, so bringing a lot of firepower, uh, engineering firepower to the stage already. Uh, the now legendary 4G63 engine would be the power plant. And by using a reinforced transfer case from another Mitsubishi product, the Bajero, a bit of an agricultural uh, crossover there, they would make the Starion four-wheel drive. I, I think the, sta the, uh, the Pajero thing is well worth 
landing on a little bit because Mitsubishi was seemed to be you they they were certainly ahead of the curve in terms of uh, assessing and identifying the value of Paddy Dakar and similar rally raids, which mm-hmm. was very much in the infancy in the early eighties. And Mitsubishi, as we all know, had a very strong uh, standing in in rally raid stuff with uh, Pajero's. Uh, from the 80s onwards and of course it would reach its uh, apex 20 years later when they were just winning year after year uh, and from as i understand it there was quite a lot of conflict within mitsubishi and rally art as to whether they should put their eggs in the dakar rally raid basket or the special stage basket um and yeah the starry as a result yeah and i mean they did it was something they would probably battle with throughout their motorsport career mitsubishi um but interestingly enough, I suppose a, a kind of bit of a pub trivia bit here, because of the four-wheel drive system they opted for from the Pajero, this had it come to, well, they did build them, but had, had it actually ended up competing, it would have been the only actual 4 by 4 in the class if it was homologated as opposed to all-wheel drive because it did have a reinforced Pajero transfer case rather than a, a more traditional all-wheel drive set up opted for by the other manufacturers. Now, the drivetrain arrangement was pretty pretty novel and pretty cool, I think. You know, engine mounted longitudinally uh, and tilted five degrees to the rear in order to get the front axle underneath and then a front diff connected to the aforementioned transfer case. Um, pretty instantly recognisable. If you'd seen a Starion before, you'd know they were pop-up lights, as were the, which were the style at the time. Um, but it did have those replaced by a fixed fixed headlight design and, and a more open grill, kind of a black mesh grill. Actually, it looks really, really striking, I reckon. Uh, and Presumably the that was done for, for to save weight and, and complexity on the uh, on the pop-up headlight mechanisms. Yes, and also you wouldn't have been allowed to run. Uh, you would have had to run with them fixed upright as well anyway. So you would have had to replace those mechanisms regardless. But uh, definitely then they were able to chop the nose and shorten it uh, as well. So better better visibility presumably and uh, the even less weight again so they did use quite a lot of uh, carbon kevlar items it, it did have a plastic bonnet arch extensions and bumpers and then the evo model which was planned would have replaced these with carbon kevlar which would have lightened the car by a further 100 kilos from the original um production design so the the engine you know we we all know what a 4g63 is is capable of at this point and at the time, it would have produced 350 horsepower, which wouldn't have put it at the top of the power charts by the time the car would have actually been completed and ready to enter the World Championship. Um, and the engine was was actually bored out to a 2,140cc, and with the turbo added, would have put it in the 2,996cc class with the 1.4 multiplication factored in, uh, which is your favourite pet topic of Group E, Jamie, your, your turbo multiplication formulas. Genuinely despise it. I, 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 as anyone who knows me personally, I am awful at maths. Like I, I just genuinely, and, and I hate the fact, and I always have done actually as a kid, the fact that one of my favourite topics and the thing that growing up I kind of prided myself knowing a huge amount about is is beset by some fucking maths. But you know, it needed it needed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Yeah. So the car, which was based on the, the wide body model of the Starion, which did exist, it was planned to enter the World Championship in 1985 uh, and never materialized, um, which I can't figure out why. I, when looking into this, is uh, information seems to be um, on the scant side. Uh, so it was only going to be ready to homologate in 1986, which is really the reason why 
we never saw it. Now, early prototypes uh, showed a lot of promise. They did win its class in its in the 1984 Rally Meal Piste. Um, but however, by the time the project was about to mature and overcome the initial issues that part of and plague any new car development, Mitsubishi were worried the design would not be able to cut the mustard and put up against the new mid-engined, more powerful designs from Peugeot, Ford, Lancia, and and indeed Austin Rover, uh, especially given it was only going to be homologated for 86, at which point it would have been really, really obsolete. So it's it goes back to maybe some of these also runs we spoke about earlier, you know, had it had it landed on the stage, the the time and the delay would have put it far behind anyway. So at, at that point, it was probably going to be worth pulling the plug, regardless of whether Group E had continued or not. I, I think I think Mitsubishi probably would have killed it, uh, in my opinion, anyway. And, and interest was now waning. They did make some effort to do some rounds in the Asia Pacific uh, area at national level with with some mixed mixed success, but that was about. All she wrote for the for the poor Starion, um, and it must be said, as I said before, a really tasty looking bit of kit in the Rally Art livery. Uh, the shorter front end really, really makes it a, a, a stunning looking thing. Uh, and there was a proposal for a Group S Starion, uh, but of course, since Group S never happened, that was also swiftly binned. Yes, I, I think it's hard to overstate how um, happy most Japanese car manufacturers were with the promotion of Group A to the Premier category. I mean, this is exactly what, you know, it was is what they'd liked about Group 4, you know, taking a production car and, and demonstrating its worth in a rough environment, but just promoted and given all the, the pizzazz of, of, of the Premier class. Um, so the, the notion of, of continuing to develop a, a Group B or even a Group S Starion against the grain and against the opposition must have, lost to peel quite swiftly when you when you consider that they had a a gallant with a a massive potential boost reserve and, and everything else that we know about so yeah I yeah see why a, they chose that. a worthy point I, I think you know had group e continued another year or two and indeed if group s had replaced it i don't think we would have seen the kind of japanese rallying revolution um no. that we all know and love later on in group a and of course, it's worth mentioning that there was, of course, a Group A study. And, you know, Pentia Ricola did did wonderful things with it in the British Rally Championship, um, and and was you know frenetic shit hot and everything else. But yeah, it's uh, kind of demonstrates the potential of the of the car inherent, I suppose. Yeah, Ricola, he he did seem to hit like every ditch in the Manx that one year, didn't he? he the car was being dragged around the place. Didn't he also? Um, it's the Ulster Rally in nineteen. 19- 87 or 88 when he took a jump in in practice or recce and ruined Ronan uh, Ronan's back or whatever I know that he had to he had to retire from the rally because his co-driver was in hospital with a mm. a, a bruised vertebrae or something purely yes. for, for being too too quick over a jump which is quite something yeah and recce as well as you say um but of course they did recce it rather the, the recce stories from that era are all pretty Hatchet, uh, as well, be one way of putting it. Very angry man, Penty Aricola, by the looks of interviews and footage of him. And, 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 and a wonderful man, but also you've got to question the, the sanity of any man who chooses to, cho- chooses to leave his native Finland to, to live in the Midlands in England in the late 80s. I mean, that's, uh, as, as a man who lives in England in the mid, in the Midlands right now, I can say that's not a particularly bonny place. 
yeah, maybe some te- tests should be undertaken, and and any any man who chooses to leave Scandinavia for the Midlands uh, in the UK. And so with the with the Starion left in the dust, what have we got next on the list, Jamie? Next up, we have uh, what may be the the weirdest of all the would be Group B rally cars, the Lada Samara EVA. Uh, I mean, there are a whole host of reasons why this never made it to the special stage, uh, and one of which, the unique amongst all of them, really apart from the Moscovich, is is the fact that it was made by a communist regime, um, and that had all manner of knock on. Uh, effects for its development to curing funds for something as frivolous as going motor racing in the capitalist West must have been quite the challenge um, and probably explains why the vast majority of Lada's rallying endeavours um, Samara prior to the Samara and indeed including the Samara uh, were based out of Tallinn, Estonia um, led by a chap called you have to pick up my pronunciation here <laughs> Dasis Brunza Man, I'm very sorry to our one Estonian listener. That's that's terrible. Um, but he was responsible for all the Riva-based uh, rallying efforts, um, including the 1600 naturally aspirated B10 class contender, which was effectively a ladder Riva designed for the 1300 to 1600 cc class with a hotted up uh, 1600 single overhead cam engine. Um, but of course, the Group B Samara was far more ambitious. Um, Albeit still run out uh, of a an abandoned lorry park outside Estonia, supposedly. Um, it was a fully space-framed effort with a silhouette body shell. Uh, and the EVA stood for Experimental Vilnius Auto Plant. It was mid-engine, rear-wheel drive, made use of basic composites for his exterior bodywork. Um, and all the work required to make this car a reality, all the work required to make this car a reality was achieved against the odds. Uh, with a fair, deg- fair degree of cloak and dagger to boot, the engine had to be completely overhauled to be even vaguely suitable, uh, and it emerged as, from this as a double overhead cam unit with a single large turbo, which was reckoned to be good for between three and 300 and 350 brake, depending on the boost, but it was resolutely rear-wheel drive, nor was there ever any plan to make it anything other than this, uh, which, of course, would have limited its effectiveness had it achieved fruition. Uh, it had made well. Lada made use of uh, extensive error de- devices, though these were seldom fully wind tunnel tested. So whether or not they would have been as effective as as the as the car manufacturer hoped is open to question. And then it fell victim to the usual Group B uh, issue of the passage of time. Uh, between twenty and thirty of the two hundred required were built before the act fell on Group B midway through nineteen eighty six. Um, which led to a struggle to secure full funding for the rally program from Moscow. Most of these cars built supposedly had naturally aspirated engines, i.e. the road cars, to save save money and expedite the process. Um, and yeah, so a lot achieved against the odds. And it's probably fair to say that had it been homologated fully and proven and developed, then it would have been a fairly potent national competitor. But there's no way, unless it had emerged at the tail end of 1982 and been faultless throughout 1983, that would have been anything other than a, a bit player on the world stage. Yeah, and, and if and, and I'm sure people listening have seen these before, but if you haven't, you really do have to look this up because when Jamie talks about aerodynamic devices, there is no less than two identical rear wings 
slapped onto it at different heights at the rear. And I, I think the overall package ends up looking like something built for, you know, like these kind of things that get modified for like an 80s te- American television program set in the future or something. It, it, it has that kind of look to it. Um, but I think what, what's really interesting about this project in, in the, in the once again, the alternate timeline where, where they came to pass is that it, like maybe in a straying too much to some sort of geopolitical thing is that in, in that regard, having a team from the Soviet Union competing across Europe and the world with a world rally car with the Iron Curtain still up would have been really interesting to actually look back on today and what, what show that would have happened. Would they have all just defected to the West <laughs> um, <laughs> or something like that? Um, I like the idea that if, if there'd been a ladder team for the Olympus rally in 1986, no one would have been on the, uh, on the Aeroflot uh, return leg. Yeah, they've all just legged it and to the nearest, you know, US embassy, um <laughs> <laughs> selling the secrets of the Lada Samara um to the highest bidder. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to yeah, that would be quite a hard thing to trade. <laughs> yeah. A green card for the technical secrets of Lada Samara. But I do I don't think it's worth talking about because it would have been interesting in, in the days where, where very few people were allowed to travel outside the Soviet Union and, and you probably would have had some like armed KJB uh, escorts with the team in the service park. I think it's a very realistic expectation to see, um, apart from the car itself, that the whole story had it come to, would, would it have come to pass. And I'm sure it's no coincidence that it was developed in Estonia, one of the, the satellite USSR states, you know, um, that the USSR's influence was always a bit more marginal when you got to the Baltics and Poland. And I suspect there's, it's no coincidence that this program uh, arose from there. Um, it's worth saying, of course, that it, it it supposedly provided the framework and the foundations for the uh, Dakar Rally Raid spec Samaras of the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, I believe Jackie X came third in a Paris-Dakar and a Samara uh, in that period. And, and these cars were heavily based on that. So not a complete waste, but, but certainly in terms of a top-tier pucker B12 Group B car, perhaps onto a hiding to nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and speaking of nowhere, uh, we move on to the Alfa Romeo Sprint 6C. Uh, this is really one that it barely left the drawing board, this one. But I think the, the reason we've kind of chosen to include it here is that the, the prospect of another rear-wheel drive, mid-engine, Italian, gorgeous-bodied, stylish thing going at it against the 037 in, in 83 or 84 would have been quite the quite a prospect um what a treat that would have been Lancia would have taken them to the absolute cleaners that's that's my you know I, i'm glad it exists and i'm glad that there was the idea to do it but given alfa romeo's slightly confusing way of going about business and considering they were funding a really bad f1 team at the time i suspect even in this parallel universe Lancia being the the powerhouse of rallying that they were at the time would have absolutely dusted them Oh, there's, there's, there's very little doubt of that. But this would probably would have sounded rather good. Now, despite you know between the stages, Alfa Romeo as a company probably would have undergone multiple financial implosions. You know, between you know just while the car was on the road section to the next stage. Um, but what a thing, you know. So the, the Alfa were rallying at this point and, and previous to that in Group Four. Uh, with turbo the, Delta, Turbo Delta. Yeah, I mean, yeah, fantastic, pretty body. Great name, yeah. The coolest yeah. name of any rally yeah. car. It, up there. 
does, does that just sum up like Alfa Romeo? Great body, great name, uh, and then maybe not the sum of its parts uh, after that. Um, but yeah, so they 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 clad decided to clad this this prototype, and that's all uh, all it ended up being. And there was two prototypes. So what one which appears to be based, uh, you know, around the idea of what the homologation road going car would have looked like, and one competition car. Now it. It looked for years that one of these was gone forever, but it was found under other boxes in a basement under some Alfa Romeo factory eventually. Um, so they, they it would have been clad in a body derived from the already quite pretty episode Sprint. So in 1982 or maybe 1981, because I found conflicting reports, Alfa decided to take advantage of the looser Group E regulations and make a, another foray into rallying in the, in the B12 regulations. Now, with the, the likes of the Stratos before this time and the Renault 5 showing that the mid-engine competition car was a competitive formula, uh, as at this point, the 037 wouldn't have actually started competing. Um, this was going to be uh, applied to the sprint. So by relocating the engine uh, to the rear, it didn't actually change the overall shape of the car that much. Like If you looked at the car from a distance, it would look like a, a regular front-engined rear-drive uh, Alpha Sud sprint. Um, so it, it still looked really rather good. They did add muscular box arches, kind of louvers on the uh, on the rear window and a rear spoiler integrated into the tailgate. Now the resulting shape looked really, really purposeful, kind of squat, nice stance to it. Now, and at the time the prototypes were revealed, then the 037 had debuted. And one imagines that this this lent credence to the design direction being the correct route to take. Now, info on this program is, is rather scarce. Um, but what we do know is the engine was to be the fuel-injected 2.5-litre V6 found in the GTV, which is a rather famous, loved, well-known engine, intended to be homologated in 2,503cc form, though in order to be more competitive, it's likely this would have or would have definitely needed to grow and evolve to approach the 3-litre mark and stay stay with, with its peers. You would have added like an Italian, almost Metro 6R4 approach, you'd assume. Mm. naturally aspirated relying on large capacity and no turbo lag to overcome it absolutely yeah i mean look, they, they they saw what lancia were doing to solve the the, the lag and, and they went for a lower capacity boosted Birmingham, engine birmingham and turin together at last <laughs> they're twin cities aren't they <laughs> they have much in common <laughs> um so it would have had the same five speed zf Transactional transmission used to good effect in the 037, uh, weighing around 990 kilos, so not overly light by the the regulations allowed, but pretty pretty lightweight. Um, the the answer to this project going no further really though than the two prototypes has to be Alpha was stone broke and hemorrhaging money, you know, n- no doubt down to well the usual poor management issues inherent to Alfa Romeo over the course of its history. And it's it's uh, F1 ventures at the time, as Jamie pointed out also. Yeah, and I think it's also worth pointing out that like a lot of the really early Proto Group B cars, th- this was devised before the rules had kind of been fully formulated and there was still a, a state of flux in what was possible. Because, of course, Alfa Romeo had a, had a rich history in producing uh race-related and you know naturally aspirated mid-engined uh, race cars. And, and the, the notion of producing something similar for Group B um, would have been quite compelling, especially as 
you know, circa 1981, 1982, rather, Group Group B must have seemed like that. That must have seemed like a fairly viable route to what Group B would have ultimately become. Um, and it's only with with the advantage of hindsight, hindsight that we can tell that things got rather more complex and and uh, adventurous than that. Yeah, it, it probably had a come onto the stage has ended up something along the lines of BMW M1 situation, maybe. Um, but and yeah, I suspect we'd have needed like the BMW M1. You'd have needed, uh, which I believe was run by Arika mm-hmm. uh, or Arika. Um, we'd have needed uh, a, a a sort of Italian version of that of 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 Arika to sort of hold Alfa Romeo's hand and do the dirty work because there's no way Alfa Romeo, I suspect, would have been, you know, entering this as, and doing the, the the hard yards as a factory. I suspect, like the BMW, it would have been a manufacturer paired to a uh, a, a sort of third party with lots of engineering prowess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, short of poaching a load of X. Abarth or Lancia staff, it was only going to be the only way of doing this and making it any semblance of, if not success, but completing one rally to the next. Um, Which, did... be, being an Italian team in the 80s, isn't outside of the realm of possibility. I can well imagine there being the internal strife required to poach Turin guys from Abarth and vice versa. I'm sure someone floated the idea. You know, it. Over a few vinos. Yes. Yes, you know, you, you walk out of the, the Arbarth office and there's there's a man in a trench coat hat and smoking a cigarette waiting across the road in a, a dark Alfa Romeo saloon <laughs> wa- waving waving some money at you. Although, actually, he wouldn't have been waving money at you because he worked for Alfa Romeo, so I don't know actually how... He'd he... have been throwing lira at you, just, just yeah. coins. Yeah. <laughs> We're setting Anglo-Irish-Italian relations back decades. Hmm. Um, no, they did. They did choose in the end to bring the Group Four Alfetta Turbo Delta into Group E homologation instead, um, which is probably the wiser choice financially. Uh, and of course, uh, multiple financial implosions later uh, in 1986, Alpha was bought by Fiat, and any hope of uh, going up against Lancia on a rally stage was lost forever. Although we did get to see the Group A GTV V6 uh, later in the decade as well, uh, which looked flipping amazing in Rothman's livery with mm. uh, Lube uh, all driving. Right, so next up we have one of the, another another similarly proto-Group B car, uh, the Peugeot 305 V6 Rally. Um, and this one's always fascinated me purely because I think it illustrates how uh, the, the potential for what Group B could be was underappreciated right back at the start of the 80s. This is uh, Peugeot's uh, Group B creation prior to the 205 T16. Um, it was laid down in 1981 with the sole purpose of winning at world championship level and designed from the get-go for the Group B regulations. Uh, and to an extent, it made use of them. Uh, the 305 was a resolutely front-wheel drive affair, yet Group B gave Peugeot the freedom to re- re-engineer it to send power to the rear axle. As such, the car that emerged was, in line with many of its group group B contemporaries, little more than a group four taking a stage or two further. And even that was open to debate, given that three or five V6 was naturally aspirated and made a mere 250 brake, at least in the prototype stage. Said V6 was the PRV, the joint venture between Peugeot, Renault and Volvo, hence the name. It would go on to power all manner of cars, most, most notably the DeLorean. But it was never known for its power delivery. Um, yes, Peugeot could have heavily turbocharged it to make to make it so, 
but doing so on an engine with a relatively large capacity would have seen them fall foul of Group B's class system and the, for, the aforementioned forced induction multiplier. And exact concrete information on the spec of the car is very hard to track down, uh, but then that's hardly surprising given that it was never turned a wheel in anger and was rapidly overtaken by events. The whole 305 program was culled when Jean Todd joined Peugeot in 1982 and rapidly set about forming Peugeot Talbot Sport. Talbot Sport. Todd could see the shape of the future and the full potential of Group B and thus set about developing what would become the most successful, winningest Group B rally car of all the 205 T16. Yeah, it, it's it. What's most interesting for me about this is, of course, the the front wheel drive aspect of this, because no one else was kind of bringing group fee group four plus 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 cars. They were all rear wheel drive affairs. Well, certainly the the B twelve homologated cars. Anyway, um, it would have actually been rather interesting to see how that would have turned out. Um, it's yeah. fair to assume that well, not amazingly well, um, but certainly on certain events. Uh, I mean, what could it have done? I'm inclined to th- sort of put that more at the the door of Peugeot's ethos as a, a car maker than any sort of forward looking aspect, because they were in bed with the sort of front wheel drive concept um, at the time. Um, certainly more so than mass m- most mass production car companies. Um, but you're right. Um, you know, it, Group B enabled the idea that you could you know, chop and change and make this possible, uh, which wouldn't have been possible under Group 4, for instance. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's another real proto, proto Group B effort from the very early days of the 1980s before the full scope of the regulations had been realised, let alone embraced. Yeah, this is very much a, a paper care rather than a, even something that made the prototype stage. I think a, a, a sort of French... Uh, B side to the to the alpha. To be honest, yeah, um, I, did, I mean, it's. I think, and I haven't seen any of this, but I think it's as likely that the furthest this would have went would have been some sort of engine mule rather than any actual working car. And for a car company at Persia, it must have been quite a, an easy thing to cook up as well. You know, PRVs, they must have had loads of them kicking around at the time, and it's not too hard to envision them chopping up a three or five shell and sticking some basic rear-wheel drive running gear from a 505 or whatever into it. No, 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 no doubt, no doubt. Which, by the way, is the is the rally car we should have had, the Group the, the group B. A Group B Peugeot 505 would have been, I think, a GTI Peugeot 505 would have been my favourite. I, I, I do like a 505, to be fair, Dave. Oh, They're mag- magnificent. I'm back in the days when you, you could, you know, buy a Peugeot, short of a fast fusion that was not as embarrassing as playing something that was related terrible things to the 505 GTR and that brings us really rather neatly to the end of our our lists as such but we do have a bonus mention uh, because it's it fits into it is it is definitely a it's kind of somewhat of an also ran and never ran and also we're talking about in that it was one of the cars that the, the groupy approach of having this kind of rally and circuit-based homologation care, uh, this is one of the vehicles that kind of came to fruition from that that approach. Yes, uh, the Porsche 959. Um, I'm sure we don't need to tell everyone listening to this because you're all far too far down the line and therefore infected with the, the rally nerd curse. But, but Group B 
was designed by uh, FISA, F- FISA rather, um, as a uh, an all-encompassing uh, circuit racing and rally driving formula, rally formula. Uh, and the 959 is really the only instance of this being applied. Um, it, it it's the of the uh, it's impossible to talk about it without also talking about the Ferrari 288 GTO, which was meant to be its its foil on the race circuit, but of course never got there and became the the road car that we know the first supercar, arguably. Um, and it offers the 959 offers a, a fascinating glimpse of what Group B could have become, uh, an alluring multidisciplinary motorsport category uh, designed to attract car makers of all stripes. And Porsche was precisely the sort of car company that the FIA hoped Group B would interest, uh, as in theory, it promised them the chance to use the same basic design for race and track work. Yeah, and arguably the, the perfect company as well to make that concept work because they have serious pedigree on the circuit and on the rally stage because, of course, people have been rallying 911s since there was 911s, basically, uh, to, to, to good success, very popular care. Porsche had all the ingredients to even on a even if on a part spin approach to make a car like this work, uh, and and what came of that was and, and I'm not calling a nine five nine a part spin special although you could argue some of it is because it is it isn't really an all new car although a very impressive one in in any form. Uh, yeah, I mean it's stunning looking thing. Uh, rather cumbersome, I would wager, had it have made it to to the groupie rally stages. Yes, well, I think it kind of. Um, I, I'd argue it, it was fairly bespoke as a concept, but it, it felt it fell victim to mission creep, as so many of these projects did. Um, in as much as Porsche, when were always viewed rallying as a circuit racing's muddy, horrible sibling, you know, the lesser lesser sibling to be tolerated and and viewed and, and funded accordingly, um, and I, the nine five nines. Uh, racing uh, potential pedigree was definitely favoured more than its uh, its its off road stuff, um, but then also Porsche then faced the issue of how to actually physically how would how would creating a Group B race and rally car physically manifest itself in as much as these two disciplines demand such vastly different uh, specs and 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 potential potentials. Um, and you see it in its spec. Um, it had an electronically governed all-wheel drive system, uh, basic by our standards, but it was able to send uh, torque to the front and rear axle. Um, but it still had a flat six air-cooled engine um, mounted longitudinally after the rear axle and with a, a less than stellar weight distribution of 4060. Not terrible, but not ideal. That made 450 brake from the get-go, uh, although um, the intro with with a sequential turbo, which was a sop to uh, negating the all-encompassing uh, turbo lag, which we all know was uh, such a, a factor of all these cars. Um, but it wasn't all smooth sailing. Um, there was uh, cam chain variance issues, vibration issues, which, which caused no end of issue, uh, trouble uh, and, and needed for Stuttgart to... Um, employ a second chain which added complexity weight and worst of all time that's the that's the killer for this program you know mm. it's it's it starts quite early i think the program is announced in 1983 uh but it doesn't make its actual debut until 1985 um for which case as we as we've well covered group b is into its complete swing and if you're not 
there competing up and running come 1985. You may as well pack and go home. Um, and then there's the issue of, of weight, which increased uh, as because technology weighs quite a lot, especially 1980s technology. Um, it weighed 1,260 kilograms, which made it comfortably more than its class competitors. And that was despite the use of carbon and Kevlar extensively uh, in its exterior body panel. Yeah, I, I think looking at it like this technical tour de force approach in, in, in this era would probably have lent itself to rather disappointing results. So, okay, on paper, okay, let's let's do this this way, let's do this that way, let's bring in all this new technology. It probably would have caused no end of problems on the the dirty world of, of world rallying, um, regardless of the weight. You know, an electronically governed all-wheel drive system sounds great. I'm sure they can make it work. But would it keep up with the punishment? Probably not. Um, and even the power from the get-go, the 450 brake in a sequential twin turbocharged car. Bear in mind, the, the V64V in the Metro at the time was making not far away from that with no turbos uh, and wouldn't have had the lag. Um, so I think I think maintaining one and running one on, a, on an event would have been a nightmare. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and there was also the conflict uh, in priorities inherent within Porsche. Uh, was this to be a stripped-down ped back homologation special in the traditional Group B mould? Or was, as increasingly the case, was this to be a costing leather-clad supercar with a competition backstory? Um, and that would dog the whole 959 programme throughout its existence. And it's probably fair to say the axe fell on the notion of a 959 stage rally car um, in 1984, uh, when uh, Jackie X, with um, some arm twisting from Rothmans, convinced Porsche to allow ProDrive develops into a, a, a brace of 911 SCRSs, uh, which is the 911, sorry, the naturally aspirated 911 uh, homologated Group B earlier um, for the uh, 1984 Paris Dakar which unexpectedly, I think for all parties, won. Uh, they finished first, sixth and 17th. But that completely swayed Stuttgart's mind. And I think it's safe to say that after that, any any notion of it being a Group B stage rally car was done and dusted and it became the the Dakar rally car that we now know it has. Mm. Um, they entered a trio of 959s into the 85 event, to the year after, uh, but these were, and, and it's it's a it's a testament to the technology and how forward looking at the time that Porsche, even a company as technologically gifted as Porsche, had to detune these cars. They were naturally aspirated uh, for for that rally, which again wasn't wasn't um, unknown. Uh, I know that Opel did a similar thing with its uh, Mark II Astra Cadet E uh, rally cars. They ran naturally aspirated uh, Manta four hundred engines as a, a sop to to. East African fuel and octane ratings, uh, but still, it, it was it was definitely a climb down. Um, all the cars retired in 1985, and then Porsche doubled down its commitment for the following year, developed the cars fully, and the cars that the trio of cars that contested the 1986 event uh, won it, or at least one did. Uh, that was in 390 brake guys. They finished first, second, and sixth, and that was. Kind of it, as far as Porsche was concerned. Bearing in mind, this is the summer of 1986. So, obviously, the the, the fate of Group B is known by this point. Um, the first 
road car 959s weren't delivered to customers until the autumn of the following year, 1987. So, I mean, really, there was no hope. You know, the idea that you'd have to build these as homologation run and, and, and in effect, the idea of making a really luxurious plush supercar won out in the end. Um, and it became the Ferrari 288 GTO's famous foil from then on. Yeah, and of course the Porsche went back to their their more usual hunting ground then and refocused on on circuit work once more with the nine six one, which was a development of the nine five nine, but but further optimized for 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 the roundy roundy setups, and uh, it did with with good success. It won its class and came seventh overall on the nineteen eighty six Le Mans twenty four hours, uh, which made it, of course, the only true Group B circuit winner. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I've always found myself drawn to the car manufacturers, Porsche, BMW, um, are the classic instances of, of of, and you don't get it so much now. Well, you don't get it at all now because cars aren't aren't built. Production cars aren't built and then just thrust into rallying as they were. But back in the day, there were car companies who made cars that were predisposed to be half decent at rallying, and they could be quite decent and competitive with or without the the car manufacturing question support and BMW and uh, and Porsche are the classic instances you know they they won despite the indifference of Stuttgart and Munich um and the 959 is this sort of interesting bisecting point of of when that was no longer enough and and the factory had to make a choice and in the end you know roundy roundy racing and production won um so yeah yeah, and that, and that brings us to an end of our also rands and never rands episode. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. We we, we had a good time doing this. Uh, to be fair, it's uh beginning to quite like these kind of more the discussion based episodes. Um, so yeah, if you want to see more of this kind of subject or or uh, format, do let us know. Please let us know. We we we've still got the uh, the potential of what Killian's previously mentioned, uh, like Group Four Plus cars from the early eighties. <laughs> <laughs> which can be has the potential for the most niche rallying podcast episode ever. Yeah, which is surely right up our street. I mean, if anyone can do it, surely us. And, uh, and at, I think I think group... engage. Yes, yes. And I think I think a group S discussion should be on the cards at some point to go over exactly the ins and outs of that category because it's it's kind of a foggy subject at the best of times, um, and and did spawn a number of functioning prototypes um, that never saw the the true light of day on events. Uh, naturally Absolutely. enough. Uh, and before we finish up, I, um, I should uh, give a shout out to a couple of people who have given us such things over, over recent weeks. Um, though this will be a, a little bit behind these because we, we record a, a bit further in advance. But um, I do have to say a massive thanks to Kevin O'Regan at the, the Irish Rally podcast who, who has given us a shout out there on a recent episode. Um, the guys over there do great work. If you, if you don't listen to that uh, podcast and it's your cup of tea, if you're listening to this and you like Irish rallying, do head over to that guy's channel. Uh, Kevin does some great work there. And not just in covering the events and kind of giving great airtime to different classes and covering results across the, the entry list, but as actually, I think the best work to do really is, is a forum to discuss issues raised by competitors and spectators and give them give them good airtime talking to officials and people within motorsport rather than confining these these things to common sections and uh, giving them the light of day. So you know, Kevin does some great work and I uh, do appreciate his support. Absolutely. So thanks very much for listening once again, and uh, we'll see you guys in two weeks' time for another episode of Rally DNA. Thanks for listening.